welcome, welcome, welcome back to the podcast. It's your host, Jada Kamau, and we're so excited that you're joining us today. We have a very exciting episode ahead with actually an alumna of Wheaton, um, and her name is Matea. Matea, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yes, we are so excited to delve into the piece that you've put together. Um, it was absolutely beautiful. It filled my heart with joy and conflicting feelings <laughs> as I was thinking it. Um, so I'm excited to, to delve into it. But first, I would love to learn a little bit about you. Could you tell us where you're from, your major at Wheaton, when you graduated and such? Absolutely. So I'm from Franklin, Tennessee, so the South, and really enjoyed my time at Wheaton. It was quite different from where I grew up. And I double majored in English literature and psychology. Mm. And I graduated in the midst of COVID. So it was kind of unconventional um, in May 2020. That's so unfortunate, man. Um, And currently you're not living in the States. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, I'm located in Edinburgh, Scotland. Okay, incredible. So it's such an honor that you joined the podcast today to come and talk to us. So how was your time at Wheaton? What do you think? was particularly formative about it for you? Mm. I think there are so many things that I deeply cherished about my experience. And it was relatively brief, I think, compared to some of my friends because I graduated in three years. And then with the pandemic also coming into effect, um, part of my last semester was spent at home. So it it was kind of a, a rush journey in some ways. But even in the semesters where I was on campus, I just felt that the professor's poured into me in such significant ways. They were so inspiring and so thoughtful. And the way that they pursued a robust intellectualism as well as a robust faith, I think that was something that was deeply admirable and really shaped me moving forward as well as lifelong friendships that I cultivated. Um, It's been really sweet. I had a friend that I made at Wheaton come visit me just a few weeks ago. And so to be able to show her around Scotland and to be able to connect about those memories that we had then and to see the forward progression where we're headed in the future, I think that has been such a gift from my time at Wheaton. That's so beautiful and very inspiring um, as someone who has just come into Wheaton and I'm excited about the future. I'm glad that you're able to look back so fondly on your Wheaton experience. Mm -hmm. What have you been up to post-grad? Yes. So I, after graduating from Wheaton in May 2020, I was not initially sure um, what path to take due to the pandemic just um, upsetting some of my plans. But I ended up um, taking a leap of faith and continuing with my initial thought about doing a master's degree in Scotland. So I did a master's in museum and gallery studies at the University of St. Andrews and have since graduated from that. And now I'm working as an art curator at a basically really recently founded art gallery in the city of Edinburgh. That is so cool. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that you have done incredible things. That's so exciting that you're an art curator. I think that I grew up knowing a few people in roles like those and I admired them so much. So what you do is really incredible. Where do you think? Where do you think that your passion for art came from? That's a good question. And I think my journey has been indubitably orchestrated by God, but it's something that I did not always expect uh, because with my major being in English literature, you know, I saw 
literary art as being foremost. And, and that was really where my passion um, was held. And I loved reading and I adored writing. And it seems that, you know, that was the focus of all of my attention. And then for a time, I considered clinical psychology because of my love of story. Like I, I really wanted to minister to people in that way. Um, but then it's just bizarre. It was actually through the Arts in London program offered by Wheaton, mm -hmm. where I traveled over with Dr. Milner and a lot of students and wow. he would take us to a different museum for every class session and would be so joyous and would run around and say, look at this, like, can't you see the beauty <laughs> of this? And, and his, um, his zeal and enthusiasm for that was so contagious. And I, I saw my different passions kind of synthesizing because I'd never really grasped that you could work in a museum or gallery. I kind of thought they just mm. you know, magically came together and you could go visit. I didn't think about the team behind the scenes. And I thought, oh my gosh, my love of writing, of research, yeah. my appreciation for art and all of its mediums, like that's really where that intersects. So that's sort of my, my path to getting where I am today. But I think my, my passion for art has always been with me since I was a child and was definitely influenced by my mother. Thank you so much for sharing. That's so cool. It's such a blessing to see how all of these pieces that seemed a little bit disjointed came together so beautifully and are now culminating in, in this job for you. Do you see yourself moving forward in another direction in the future or kind of staying where you are? Yeah, so I guess that could be interpreted in varying senses, but um, I think as far as my vocation, I feel extremely fulfilled with what I'm doing right now. I was explaining that to a friend over coffee just yesterday and thinking about, you know, I have friends that are in medical school and so they're training to be a doctor, which also has so much beauty entailed in that vocation. But I think there's so much joy and loss. Like one day you could be jubilant because you saved a patient the next day maybe you've lost them and there's not anything you could do. But I think in my job currently, I'm able to speak life over these emerging artists and say, we love your work. Can we show it? Can we help um, celebrate it with you? Can we give you a wider audience? And so it seems like just win after win after win. Obviously not everything is easy, but you're bringing beauty to people. And it doesn't seem like they're the same life and death kind of implications. So I think mm. in so many ways, I've only felt contentment from my current role and just the sense of confirmation that it's what I should be doing in this season. And I have renewed my visa, so I'll be here for the next two years. And then I think after that point, it'll just be a process of prayer um, about what is the next door to walk through. Beautiful. Well, thank you for telling us about yourself, Matea. Let's move on to talking about the piece a little bit, which I'm so excited about. <laughs> what was the background and inspiration of your poem? Yes, so it was a definitive kind of moment. Uh, I was standing in Glasgow Queen Street Station, and it was bizarre because I was there about a week ago to visit a friend and I, I walked by this spot and it's still just such a visceral reaction that I have to think I remember I was standing there and I had this experience and that's what caused me to write it literally that same day. So I was standing there um, after having visited that same friend, you know, months and months prior and saw this couple, you know, just rush toward each other um, in such a, a way of reckless abandonment, you know, like they just were so captivated by each other. 
And then there was just that juxtaposition of me <laughs> standing alone, was very tired, you know, had to kind of run to get the train and was frazzled. And, and so I just felt that stark distance. And I did also feel the sense that I had been hurt and in another time. And so it's, I think, fitting in the sense of arrival because obviously one member of the couple had just arrived, but it's also the broader sense of people will arrive and depart in your own life and, and feeling wow. like, yeah, you, you are one of them yourself and you've departed from others' lives. And so I think that was the background in a sense of me having this experience, having um, loved someone and been loved. And I think that the deep um, repercussions of that, the deep blessings that you carry with you because of that, and the kind of ensuing loneliness if things don't work out, which I think sometimes that's not talked about enough in mm -hmm. spaces like Wheaton, <laughs> yeah. uh, because there is, I think, a kind of fairy tale narrative and intertwined with ring by spring expectations. And so I think there can be an ensuing sense of isolation perhaps because of that. So that was some of the thought process undergirding the poem. Beautiful, beautiful. And your process of writing it, did you immediately know that you had to write down this poem after you witnessed this and it just came out really beautifully or was it kind of a longer process? Did you wait a long time to write it or what? Yeah, that's a good question. So. I had that initial experience and I was about to hop on the train to go back home to Edinburgh. And it was just kind of a rush of once mm -hmm. I got to my seat, I just sat down and poured out all of the words that I thought of and connected those two scenes because the scene in the tea room, it's actually Willow Tea Rooms in Glasgow, which is a pretty significant site mm -hmm. from a historical standpoint, from an art and design standpoint. And so those two scenes happen on the same trip in Glasgow. And so the poem wasn't in its final form that day. I think it was slightly longer, but it did have all of those stanzas linked in the same kind of flow and order. So it did exist fully, but then I, I kind of chipped away and refined it beyond that point. Beautiful, beautiful. Is this the way that the writing process usually is for you? I think it varies so drastically. <laughs> I wish yeah. I was one of those writers who had a distinct routine and a distinct pattern because that is what I'm like as a person in so many other senses. Mm. I am very regimented and organized, but I think it is almost a case of sometimes the muse comes, sometimes it's not as reliable. <laughs> So I think in this case, it was a rush and often that's how it is for me. Like I can go without writing a poem for several weeks, but then just have a day where I'm out on a walk and I have all of these thoughts and do just create an entire poem. But sometimes I'll be walking to work for my commute and I'll just have a phrase that kind of is repeated and repeated and I'll put it in my notes app on my phone and then it won't be until months later I'll think oh this is the poem where that actually belongs with this other wow. phrase that I thought of so sometimes it's very disparate and occurs over a long period of time but often it is that kind of rush right after you've experienced a moment where you know this has to be a poem and it's still very fresh hmm. that's very beautiful thanks for sharing that I'm so curious about the title of this poem um it's I don't want to pronounce this incorrectly but Glasgow Blues uh-huh, Glasgow Blues. Okay, 
Okay, not too far off, not too far off. No, no, you got it. (laughs) Explain the inspiration behind the title. Yeah, so I think it definitely has multiple layers or associations. And I think the emphasis is really on the blues, the latter half. Mm. Obviously, Glasgow places it in a certain location, which is important to the theme of arrival. But blues, I think, has more significance. And I think in picturing that scene in the train station, it's essentially tinged blue for me because the the train station, if you've never seen it, a lot of the ceiling is glass. And one of the, the main walls facing the square is also just purely glass. And so you can see such a reflection of the sky. So it's really grayish blue within the room itself. And so I think I had that in mind when envisioning it. But then I think blue itself as a color is so tinged with meaning and mm-hmm. is typically connected to a sense of melancholy. And so I wanted to have that present too, kind of um, as an initial flavor entering the piece. And so I think that was an important meaning. But then in another sense, I think there is the connection to blues music. And I think similar themes of loss or longing there and related to Glasgow being location-based, there is a kind of sense of displacement because blues originated in the South. That's where I'm from, but then I've been essentially plucked and put in Scotland. And so I think all of these different themes of of this title, there are these themes of displacement, melancholy, but also a sense of melody and a kind of unity. Um, So I think that was my thought process there. I am astounded. I never obviously would have been able to place all those connections there because like, I don't know where you're from and I don't know your background and such, but to hear about even how the title itself is so tinged with meaning is really special and helps me to, to have a fuller picture of the poem as a whole. Mm-hmm. Do you kind of walk us through some important themes in the poem that we wouldn't understand just by reading them? Yeah, so I think I've I've touched upon quite a few. I think um, a sense of of love and loss correlating with a sense of arrival and departure mm-hmm. are really key to the the overall thesis of the poem. Mm-hmm. Um, it was interesting. I don't know if this is directly related to theme. It's almost more about form. But it was fascinating to see it actually in the pub because my my initial draft that I sent in did have italics to sort of separate um, the last three lines in each stanza, Mm. essentially as love's to-do list. And so I thought the italics added an extra sense of almost giving it the appearance of love's handwriting because it it is a bit more more humanized or more more unique Mm. in that typeset. Um, so it's interesting to to kind of see that present or removed. Um, I think it, it does kind of change a sense of the poem. So that was just interesting in thinking about my creation of it versus later approaching it more as a reader and how certain themes or inflections had changed. Yeah. Wow, that's so special to know. Do you think that the piece as a whole has closure? <laughs> I think that's a very fascinating question. <laughs> and I, I think I would respond to that with saying, does poetry need closure? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think there is a value almost in poetry 
remaining jagged, I think in that sense, it can provoke a deeper emotion and leave you with questions. I don't know. I think I'm hesitant to say that poetry ever needs closure, yet I don't want to be hypocritical because I think in in a sense, when I produce a poem, it has to reach a sense of balance or a sense of completion mm-hmm. for me to yeah. even feel comfortable submitting it. So I, I guess it's just the differentiation between completion or closure. Um, so I think it has in a lot of ways been satisfied. And it's interesting in, in looking back and reflecting on it, I do feel like I am in a different mindset than I was when I wrote this um, in September, 2021. and. I think that's a really beautiful thing, but I'm so glad that mm. I preserved the way that I was in that instant because right. I think I'll never achieve that unique alchemy of emotions ever again. It's just completely mm-hmm. idiosyncratic to that time of life. Um, but I think the overall emotion is enduring, and I, I hope that other people can relate to it in a sense. Like I hope that they don't sit in that kind of sense of longing, but I hope it is cathartic in a sense, because there is, I guess, a dual nature to what I'm writing about. There is the acknowledgement that, you know, people are in love and people are kind of looking from the outside in. But I think it's cyclical because we all sort of experience both stages. Right, right. Yeah, you mentioned hoping that that the reader can relate to it. I definitely did. Um, And the part that particularly struck my heart was when the friend who was also looking on to the couple uh-huh. kissing could not relate because she'd never been in love. And I was like, yeah, yeah that, that's entirely what the experience is like. It can feel very like isolating when you see people who are in love and then you know what love is and other people can't relate to that, that same level of knowing. Um, right. I think that was something that pierced my heart and I'll have to continue to think about and kind of feel out in myself for a while. What do you want readers to take away from this piece? Was there a certain intention or did you just want to say, here are my feelings, they're on the table, do with them as you will? Mm. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good way to phrase it, how you captured that there. Because I did essentially want to express a sense of the landscape in a way. Like I, I think I was fiercely trying to preserve my emotional states and, and put that down on paper. But I think I was also fiercely grasping, you know, this is how life looks now. Like these are the landmarks. This is the train station that I now go to. This is the tea room. And I think I was grasping at these physical things and realizing how they related to the emotional psychological concepts I was communicating. So like the windows and the train station. And I think I go into the the porcelain saucers and spoons, like there is a kind of fragility there. And I think I was, I was sort of um, alluding to that also in relation to love and to relationships. Um, So I think, I hope people can witness the intricacy of that and hopefully find some, some sense of solace in it as well. And it's been fascinating. I've been making my way through a collection of lyric poetry by women of the Italian Renaissance, which might sound extremely niche. Um, But I I think it was really lovely because I stumbled upon just a few days ago, a poem and it it basically ends with the phrase, um, insidiously, meanwhile, love is preparing new traps for me. 
And I just thought <laughs> that's oh really fascinating because I kind of felt alone in drafting this and almost addressing love as mm. something out to get me and people in love as being basically in on an inside joke that that I felt I was excluded from. And I realized this is not new. <laughs> I was very humble. Yeah. You know, this is actually an active poetic tradition, this kind of address to love. And it could be someone very jubilant and joyous and basically thanking love or, or praising it. But I think there's also the, the inverse. And so I think hopefully people can realize that as well, that there is room for that in the poetic arena that it has been done. Um, so maybe that can be edifying or encouraging if someone is in a similar space, but I also want to encourage them that you can move beyond that space too. Beautiful. Matea, it was an honor to hear about the poem from you. I feel like I'm leaving with such um, a depth of understanding about the poem and about you. So I'm very grateful that you took the time to be with us today. No, I'm so thankful for this conversation. I'm really glad that you enjoyed the poem. I did, I did. And for all of those who are listening in, thanks for joining us today with this conversation with Matea. It was an honor to have you join us. Make sure that you subscribe and follow so that you're updated about when we have new episodes. We have one more episode coming out this semester, which is very exciting. So make sure you're following along. This was your host, Jada Kamau, on the podcast. Goodbye.